Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This time we're traveling to the USA in 1896. And as usual, we start the day with the morning alarm, also known as a morning alarm. Director James H. White. On a cold December morn, the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Fire Brigade respond to an alarm, and James White was there to record it. People line the street to watch the various appliances gallop by. The cameraman puts himself at risk by setting his camera in the middle of the road. American Falls from Above American Side, also known as Niagara Falls. Director James H. White. I don't think the people writing this title knew what a nonsense it is. It doesn't matter which side of the Niagara Falls you shoot from, it's still American. Shot from a viewing platform on the U.S. side, we look across at another platform where three gentlemen stand admiring the falls below them. The, the naming is a little sad. It's as if the U.S. is embarrassed by its country's name and has to blow its cheeks out to make itself look bigger, becoming ridiculous in the process. The U.S. calling itself America is like New Zealand calling itself the Pacific. Sounds good. It's true in a limited sense, and it's a load of baloney. Black Diamond Express Director James H. White Actors Benjamin F. Hardesty and Charles Lee A repair crew are working on the track. The express comes round the bend and speeds by the camera. Chicago Grand Rue Director, Alexandra Promio. The famous Ferris wheel is in the background of the shot. The camera is on the ground and tilted slightly upwards. In front of the wheel is a crossroads, forming an X from the camera position. A delivery cart crosses from frame right, and then a carriage comes in from behind the camera. A trolley bus runs through the center of the intersection. Chicago Police Parade Director Alexandra Promio Mustaches bristling, truncheons stuck under their arms. The Chicago Police March past the camera. The camera is on the pavement, looking down a street. Cockfight Director W.K.L. Dixon and William Heiss Actor Henry Walton just when you thought you'd come across enough reasons to hate Thomas Edison, this film pops up, and it's a doozy of badness. You'd have to be a cocksucker who loves nothing better than mystical negroid proportions to like this film, because your head must be filled with something other than brains. I was hoping two Yanks would yank out their cocks and fight with them, and to be fair, something like that does happen. It's just not what I expected. In the foreground are two men behind a wire net cage. Good start. Fence those lunatics in. The foreground has two roosters doing the raptor boogie on each other. 
money changes hands. Morally, what is the difference between this sport and getting two slaves to bare knuckle box? In case you're thinking I'm being too hard on Edison, he didn't film the sequence. You're right, he didn't. He allowed it to be released under his name, therefore legitimizing the sport and setting the bar for the morality and ethics of his company. Different place, different time. That argument is meaningless. They knew better back then, albeit it took until the rise of Nazi Germany to create legislation around animal cruelty, to make the knowing enforced, to be humane through the consequences of not doing. History was rude, loud, and striking. On. January the 15th. Thomas Edison got Charles Raff and Frank Gammon to buy Thomas Amat's projector system, the Phantoscope. Edison renamed it Vitascope and advertised it as his own invention. May the 18th. The US Supreme Court, in the case Plessy v. Ferguson, introduced the separate but equal doctrine in order to continue a policy of racial segregation. I will only observe two things. If the black population really were equal, then a black person would have been serving on the Supreme Court. And you cannot achieve equality through separation. May the 30th, Dr. Felix Renault in Paris, France, writing for L'Illustration magazine, said, Never before has a new form of entertainment so rapidly become a vogue. Are you interested in the cinematograph? Naturally, they are everywhere, in all the basements, of all the boulevard cafes, in the music hall outbuildings, in theatres where projections are often fitted into variety shows, even in private homes. Guests are offered viewing sessions of this fashionable entertainment. Not everyone was as fulsome. Many writers of the time had a sense of foreboding. Courier de Champagne said, All these scenes seem totally detached from the reality of life. We are unable to hear the din of passing wheels, or footfalls, or even a few words. Not a sound, not a single note of the complex symphony of sound which always accompanies the crowd's movement. Henri Pavie noted that, with the addition of sound, how shall we distinguish illusion from reality. Henri Berraud was worried by a more disturbing aspect of film. A passerby on screen stops, turns his head, and starts walking towards us, his eyes fixed in the darkness surrounding us. He could see us. He must have been able to see us. Some writers did not see this aspect as a bad thing. The Courier de Paris wrote, we shall experience departed parents or loved ones suddenly brought back to life. June the 4th. Henry Ford's first vehicle, the Ford Quadricycle, was completed. 
August the 16th. Skookum Jim Mason, George Carmack and Dawson Charlie discovered gold in the Klondike Yukon. This led to the Klondike Gold Rush. October the 12th. William McKinley appeared before a crowded audience at the Hammerstein Theatre New York while resting his feet at home in Ohio. Mutoscope had filmed him using the Biograph camera in the first screening for this company. Other films on this program included The Empire State Express, Niagara Falls and a scene from the play Trilby. Elevated Railway, 23rd Street, New York, also known as the Steam Elevated Railway in New York, released by the Edison Company. The camera is set at street level and watches the train pass above in a wide-angle shot. This is really a street scene with a train coming into view. Interrupted Lover, from the Edison Company. The story has lovers being interrupted by Pa, who separates them. The staging is awkward, and the acting even worse. The lovers sit beneath the tree for a bit of kiss and cuddle. A worker notices them and brings someone else onto the scene. This man breaks things up, and there is almost a fight. The kiss between May Irwin and John Rice. Director, William Heiss. Script, John J. McNally. Actors, May Irwin and John C. Rice. It starts with a few pecks to the cheek and develops into full-blown suckface. I didn't doubt for a second that John Rice would brush his bushy whiskers before he went into the pash, and sure enough, he did. The Edison catalogue advertised it as they get ready to kiss, begin to kiss, and kiss, and kiss, and kiss, in a way that brings down the house every time. The commercial success of the film inspired imitations such as Something Good, Negro Kiss, 1898, The Kiss in the Tunnel, 1899, and The Kiss, 1900. Soon after, Edwin S. Porter began to make fun of this genre. It's hard to say how much tongue is used in The Kiss between May Irwin and John Rice, but this did not stop the U.S. censors, no doubt prodded by the Furies, from erupting into an orgasm of frothy commentary, moted by the sad fact they were wanting some, but never getting any. A contemporary critic published on June the 15th wrote, The life-size view, bestial enough in itself, was nothing compared to this, their unbridled kissing, magnified to gargantuan proportions and repeated thrice, is absolutely loathsome. The arguments put forward at that time are still incomprehensible today. In fact, they bear all the hallmarks of a PR stunt. Right-wing wrath was engendered at the thought of two unrelated people sharing a moment of intimacy to wit a kiss, an activity common in poems, novels, and plays, not to mention park benches of the time.
The sense of moral outrage, at least from this distance and time, seems to be as manufactured as the actual kiss, and in fact, and in part, it was. The Edison Company sponsored an article in the New York World newspaper discussing the controversy of stage kissing and illustrating it with a clip from the movie. Clouds arrived at Edison theatres in droves. I would agree with the film's detractors that the intent of the film is pornographic. It's designed to appeal to puerile, voyeuristic impulses. As a result of the controversy, this was a hugely successful film. On the other hand, this film, in subject matter and execution, is the first flowering of the Andy Warhol aesthetic, that the artist reveal the banality of human activity. On a side note, this was one of the last films to be shot in Edison's Black Mariah film studio. Scriptwriter John J. McNally was born in 1855 in Massachusetts, and he died in 1931. He got a scriptwriting nod because The Kiss is a scene from the Broadway musical The Widow Jones, what he wrote in Good England so you can understood it. The scene occurs in Act 1 and features the stars of the show. His claim to fame occurs around the attempts to censor the film and not the stage play. Actor May Irwin was born on June the 27th, 1862, in Ontario, Canada, and she died in 1938. May started out as a double act with her sister Flora in 1874. The act was popular and eased May's way into the acting profession when she was 21. Edison saw her and fellow actor John C. Rice on the stage performing in the play The Widow Jones and wanted to record the kiss scene. This became the first kiss in movie history. Despite the popularity of this sequence, May was wedded to the stage and only made one other film, 1914's Mrs. Black is Back. Actor John C. Rice was born on April 7, 1857 in New York and he died in 1915. Like May Irwin, he only made one other film, 1900's The Kleptomaniacs. Lone Fisherman, also known as The Lone Fisherman. The Edison catalogue reveals that this film depicts the patient fisherman sitting on the end of a plank waiting for a bite. Practical Joker comes along and removes stone from other end of plank. There's not much to add except that gravity takes its toll and a horse and buggy pull up. Its occupants laugh at the fisherman, who has lost his patience. Must be in the water somewhere. A negro jumps into the water to help the fisherman. And I'll quietly note the racial politics of this act. America needs more negroes. Births were the icing on the cake. On... January the 14th, John Dos Passos, the U.S. author, who died in 1970. January the 20th, George Burns, the U.S. actor, died 1996. January the 21st, J. Carol Nash, the U.S. actor, who died in 1973. May the 30th, Howard Hawks, 
the U.S. director who died in 1977. June 7th, Hope Summers, the U.S. actor who died in 1979. August 10th, Walter Lang, the U.S. director who died in 1972. August the 28th, Morris Ankrum, the U.S. actor who died in 1964. September the 24th, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the U.S. author who died in 1940. October the 28th, Howard Hansen, the U.S. composer who died in 1981. October the 30th, Ruth Gordon, the U.S. actor and scriptwriter, who died in 1985. October the 31st, Ethel Waters, the U.S. singer and actor, who died in 1977. November the 1st, Lawrence Riley, the U.S. scriptwriter, who died in 1974. November the 4th, Ian Wolfe, the U.S. actor, who died in 1992. November the 16th, Jim Jordan, the U.S. actor who died in 1988. And on the same day, Lawrence Tibbet, the U.S. singer and actor who died in 1960. December the 6th, Ira Gershwin, the U.S. lyricist who died in 1983. Mr. Edison, at work in his chemical laboratory. Director, James H. White. Actor, Thomas A. Edison. Ham actor, Thomas Edison, does a turn as a mad scientist. Well, that's what it looks like to modernize. The studio set had to be built outdoors because film emulsions were not yet sensitive enough to record theatrical lighting. Edison does nothing to contradict the impression of a mad scientist, given the set looks like Dr. Frankenstein's from the Universal Horror Picture of the 30s. As film, it is propaganda, meant to portray Edison as the tireless beneficiary to society and creator of all the inventions that came out of Menlo Park. Passaic Falls Made by someone unknown the shot is down on the river, looking up at the falls and the bridge that spans the river. Rip Van Winkle Later compiled into a film, Rip Van Winkle, released in 1903. Director William K. L. Dixon, script Joseph Jefferson and Dion Bocacolt. Director of photography Billy Bitzer and actor Joseph Jefferson. The film were shot to be released as a series of shorts and were intended to preserve the performance of Joseph Jefferson as Rip Van Winkle in the stage adaptation of Washington Irving's classic short story. It is not an attempt to tell the story, but merely preserves key sequences that didn't require sound. It certainly is a good performance, albeit mannered. Look out for the disintegrating gun when Rip wakes up. It was filmed at actor Joseph Jefferson's home in Massachusetts. It was first released for the Mutoscope system with the following titles. Rip's Toast Rip Meets the Dwarf Rip and the Dwarf Rip Leaving Sleepy Hollow 
Rip's Toast to Hudson and Crew, Rip's 20-Year Sleep, Awakening of Rip, and Rip Passing Over the Hill. Rip Van Winkle was a popular subject matter in the early years of film, and many of these films feature Joseph Jefferson in the title role. Scriptwriter and actor Joseph Jefferson was born on February the 20th, 1829, in Philadelphia, and he died in 1905. Joseph is recognized as one of the best of the USA's 19th century comedians. He began at age four in blackface in a minstrel show. His father died when he was 13, forcing Joseph to actively pursue a stage career in order to support the family. In 1859, he adapted Rip Van Winkle into a popular play, itself an adaptation of earlier adaptations. In 1861, he moved to San Francisco and from there to Australia, completing a successful tour of the country in 1862 and avoiding the Civil War in the USA by extending the tour. He stayed four years in total in Australia. There he met Dion Bocacult, and the pair went on to work on revising Rip Van Winkle one more time. Once again, it proved to be a smash hit, opening on the London stage in 1865. Returning to the USA in 1866, he made the play his stock part and continued touring it with a stock company. Scriptwriter Dion Bocacult was born on the 26th of December, 1820 in Dublin, Ireland, and he died in 1890. He was an actor-playwright who moved to the USA in 1854 after conquering the English stage. Here he added stage manager to his repertoire of jobs. By 1859, he had begun to think seriously about US politics and released the play The Octoroon, reputedly the first play to treat the black American population with respect. He met Joseph Jefferson in England in 1865. Jefferson was appearing in a production of The Octoroon. Jefferson commissioned him to rework his play, Rip Van Winkle. Shooting the Shoots, director James H. White. Flags of many nations fly along the incline. We watch a boat going down the slope while other boats are laboriously pulled up to the top. Out of sight is the view of the boats skipping across the lake. The camera looks across and ends up on this shot. William McKinley at Home, Canton, Ohio. Made by mm, unknown. Actors William McKinley, George B. Cortelou, and Ida McKinley. McKinley was a U.S. president who embraced cinema as a propaganda tool almost to the point of being a media whore. He walks with his guests towards the camera across a lawn. A priapic pot plant stage right is a distraction that vertically cuts into the frame. Actor William McKinley was born on January the 29th, 1843, in Ohio, and he died in 1901. I don't imagine he ever had the ambition to be the President of the United States, as that is a very lowly ambition. All glory and no guts. That is, until he was assassinated, and then it was all guts and no glory. He said, 
We need Hawaii just as much and a good deal more than we did California. It is manifest destiny. Manifestly bullshit, William. Even a policy of what you called benevolent assimilation doesn't forgive stealing other people's property. Any thief can justify their behavior by claiming that they only stole what they needed. Deaths were flies feeding on the cake of life. On. January the 15th. Matthew Brady, the U.S. photographer, born... 1822. May the 7th, H. H. Holmes, the U.S. serial killer, born 1861. July the 1st, Harriet Beecher Stowe, the U.S. author, born 1811. And finally, November the 22nd, George Washington Gale Ferris, Jr., the U.S. inventor, born 1859. Next episode, we'll be exploring Buster Keaton love from 1920. If you've been enjoying the silent movie moments of this podcast, allow me to draw your attention to the ebook Movie Chronicles Beginnings, available at an e-store near you. If you like this podcast, don't forget to show the love on your platform. Comments and likes attract new listeners like bees to a buffet. And don't forget to become a Buzzsprout or Patreon supporter to access special content of the show. Until next time, remember to wear your pork pie hat and prepare for pratfalls. <laughs>